One of the uh, strongest, earliest memories I ever have is as a boy in Central Florida, listening to the radio in the living room of a classmate of mine, and this would be 1924, at one of the stations that he would bring in through the hips of dining and the squealing and the twisting and turning of dials and knobs, etc. It wasn't an easy thing to listen to radio in those days. You didn't have much foot room because you had so many batteries around on the floor. All radio was run off batteries in those days, and you had recharges for batteries, and you had red lights on the recharge, and it was almost like a, setting up a laboratory the way Merrill Roberts had it. But we used to bring in KDKA. Then you'd bring in WSB in Atlanta. My gracious, what a triumph it would be if we could hear Kansas City or hear a station in Chicago. I think that the young people today who just pick up a transistor radio and your only problem is which one of a number of local stations to tune into have no idea of the excitement that hit this country when radio was young. If you've tuned into Breaking Walls episodes before, you know I rarely editorialize. I'm just the messenger bringing the news. The origins belong to the men and women who gave radio their blood, sweat, and tears through the medium's highest highs and lowest lows. I grew up in a home with my grandparents and great-grandparents, listening to the golden age of radio, basically as a hobby and nothing more. By the time I was a sophomore in high school, I came to a crux. Do I attempt to live out my childhood dream of being on the pitcher's mound in Game 7 of some future World Series? Or do I focus on getting into one of the top art colleges in the country? I chose the latter. But it wasn't an easy choice. My high school art thesis centered around a rhetorical question. What does it mean to me to be an American? Since about age eight, baseball has been one of the strongest answers. For those tuning in that aren't baseball fans, I'm sorry. There's really nothing I can say to you to make you feel emotion towards this game. But I can also try. Take this clip, for instance. It's Wednesday, October 4th, 1995, and those damn New York Yankees are back in the playoffs for the first time in 14 years. The Yankees' captain is Don Mattingly, a beloved family man from Evansville, Indiana. For six seasons, he was arguably baseball's best player. Though only 34, a bad back made him a shell of his former self. Mattingly played 1,785 regular season games before getting the chance to play in the playoffs. If you've watched enough baseball, especially with the Yankees, you know that ghosts are always around the corner. Don Mattingly. The fans want a dinger out of him. This one by Mattingly. Oh, hang on to the roof. Goodbye, home run. Don Mattingly. And that's essentially what tonight's episode is. A ghost story. Some ghost stories are scary. And some are sentimental. Sometimes... They're a little of both. His first postseason home run. 1,785 regular season games. And that's a home run try. Gets a fastball that Venice tries to go down and in. And Donnie Baseball drops ahead of the bat. Four for six in two games. He doesn't put the mustard on it like Sierra. He runs around the bases. 
the way they used to. <laughs> thank you. Hello then, Avers, and thanks for the invite to your house. Mighty glad to see you, Mom and Pop. And as for you, Junior, we're mighty sorry we arrived too late to give you a hand with the Saturday night supper dishes. Well, sir, any second I expect the whole gang to come trooping in behind me. Doris and Axel and the hit paraders with a lucky strike extra. This is where one American tradition pays its respects to another American tradition. Your hit parade salutes the upcoming World Series with Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Let's Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with a crowd. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 138. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, in honor of opening day, we'll share stories and sounds from baseball history and the radio. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Baseball's Anthem, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, as sung by Frank Sinatra and Doris Day on the September 27, 1947 episode of NBC's Your Hit Parade. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wall breakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 official Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with that crowd. Buy me some peanuts and those cracker jacks. Doc, how could you get sweet-talked into a spot like this? I I just can't understand it. No, I think you've got it all wrong, Mr. Dunn. It's kindly an honor, and I'm just proud to know, Doc. Oh, now, don't listen to him, Chester. Just hold up that looking glass while I try this thing on. How's this? Uh, yeah, yeah, just a little bit to the left. Now, hold it. Hold it right there. <laughs> You're not going to wear that. <laughs> Well, now, what's the matter with you? You two are pretty smug, aren't you? Well, now, Doc, you... Anyone with an ounce of brains knows that an umpire wears a stovepipe hat. Well, yes, but that's Arthur Meeker's undertaking hat. And it happens to be the only one in town. Looks like to me that Meeker's trying to promote a funeral. Anyway, let me look at this again. Yes, you're right, yes. I hate to admit it, but it does look kind of silly. <laughs> Uh, we've won one point anyway. Yes. Uh, Chester. Yeah, Doc. Maybe you'd step next door to the depot and see if anything came for me on the evening stage. Why, sure. Uh, what were you expecting? Well, I sent back to the Brooklyn Eagle for a copy of Chadwick's Rules. Rule? Why, you've got the boys' book of games. The rules all in there. 
Chester? Yes, sir? Don't argue with the umpire. Oh, sir. If anybody knows the rules, how he expects to be an umpire if he don't know the rules? Oh, Matt Chester. Uh-uh. Matt, what in the world have you got such a long face for? You paid Western Union $25 for a service they called Paragraph One. And they had experienced sending operators at each ballpark in the major leagues. And they would send to everybody who subscribed to their service. And it could be one station, it could be 100 stations, it could be 50 bars, it could be clubs. Whoever wanted to buy the service, all they had to do was tell Western Union, and the whole thing went on uh, Morse code, dots and dashes. And everybody who bought the service had a receiving operator. Well, I didn't know a dot from a dash, and I still don't. I never did want to know. But the receiving operator used to take down, uh, used to put it on a typewriter, and I would stand and look over his shoulder. And it came in a skeleton form, a code. Uh, for example, Western Union would send you the weather conditions a half an hour before the game was to start, and it sent you the batting orders. Then the game would start, and they would merely send, uh, let's say, Smith up. And then over would come B1L, that's ball one low. S1C, strike one call. And in fact, they didn't even send a call strike or a swinging strike or a foul strike in those days. I was one of the ones that raised so much cane. I said, for goodness sake, tell us what kind of strike it is. Polo grounds may never be the same, but uh, won't really matter very much because this is the final game of the season here, and the Mets are scheduled to open up next year at the new municipal stadium at Flushing Meadows. So right now... We'll get along to the business of giving you starting lineups and batting orders for the regular game. Baseball has been played since the middle of the 19th century. It owes its origins to two English games, cricket and rounders, and an American game born out of them, town ball. The National League has been in operation since 1876. Its first champion was the Chicago White Stockings, who later changed their name to the Colts then the Orphans, and finally the Cubs. The American League has been a major league since 1901. The AL's first champion was also called the White Sox, a name they still use today. The two leagues joined to play the first World Series in 1903, when the Boston Americans, led by Cy Young, defeated the Pittsburgh Pirates, led by Hannes Wagner. Since then, there have only been two canceled World Series, in 1904 due to protest, and in 1994 due to strike. The New York Yankees have won the most. They've been American League champions 40 times and World Series champions 27. Today, Major League Baseball players come from everywhere, including the U.S., Cuba, Panama, Japan, Mexico, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and the Netherlands. The Chicago Cubs with uh, New York boy Billy Ott in the lineup. Of course, they have rookie Nelson Matthews in there, whom they have just brought up, and George Gerberman making his start. He is from El Campo, Texas. He's only 20 years of age. At Wenatchee this year, he won 13 and he lost five. Right now, the New York Mets are taking the field here at the Polo Ground. Checking him around defensively. Ed Craneville is at first base. 
Rod Keneal is at second base. Helio Chacon is at shortstop, and Sammy Drake is at third. Frank Thomas is going out to left field. Jim Hickman is moving out to center, and Joe Christopher out to right. Choo-Choo Coleman is the catcher, and Bob Miller is the pitcher. Radio and baseball have been linked for over 100 years. This is audio from the September 23, 1962 game at the Polo Grounds in Manhattan. On the call was the old redhead, Red Barber. It was the last Sunday of the season. 10,304 people came out to see their hometown expansion Mets take on the Chicago Cubs. The Mets won their 39th game against 116 losses. By record, the 1962 New York Mets with the worst team in baseball history. As Lou Klein has come out to the coach's box at first base for the Chicago Cubs. And Charlie Metro is around at first. Now, ladies and gentlemen, our national anthem. The Polo Grounds wound up hosting the Mets for another season before being torn down. It was the end of an era. The Dodgers and Giants had moved to California in 1958. Tinseltown had room for baseball but not for radio drama. The following Sunday after this game, September 30th, 1962, CBS broadcast the final episodes of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar in suspense. It would be CBS's last aired radio dramas until 1974. But that's a radio end. Let's find the beginning. Major League Baseball's radio origin can be traced back to August 5, 1921. That day, KDKA announcer Harold Arlen set up a transmitter for Westinghouse at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. The Pirates defeated the Philadelphia Phillies 8-5. New York's WJZ broadcast the first World Series game that autumn. The 1921 World Series featured the New York Giants, managed by John McGraw, versus the New York Yankees, with star outfielder Babe Ruth. Both teams called the Polo Grounds home. In 1970, longtime New York Daily News columnist Ben Gross recalled the events surrounding Game 1. Tommy Cowan broadcast the first World Series game. It was on October the 5th, 1921. They put a man in a box at the polo grounds with an ordinary telephone, and he relayed the game to Tommy play by play. Tommy repeated it on the microphone. And do you know that when the game was over, Tommy didn't even know who had won, the Giants or the Yankees? Graham McNamee was hired by WEAF in 1922. He received over 50,000 letters for his coverage of the 1925 World Series between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Washington Senators. The Pirates won four games to three. McNamee and sports writer Grantland Rice shared a microphone with Babe Ruth. Somehow things didn't just happen. They exploded when the Babe was my sidekick. I once had him on a national radio hookup with Graham McNamee in charge. At the last minute, the Babe's carefully rehearsed script became scrambled. Before I could throw a hauler on him, he was off and running. McNamee was frantic, the orchestra leader was frantic, the producer with his stopwatch mind was frantic as Babe rambled on and on. 
At one point, the babe was supposed to refer to the Duke of Wellington's historic remark that the Battle of Waterloo had been won on the playing fields of Eton. The babe came out with this gem. As Duke Ellington once said, the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Elkton. Later, I asked Babe how he could louse up one short statement so completely. Well, Grant, he said, about that Wellington guy, I wouldn't know. Ellington, yes. As for that Eaton business, well, I married my first wife in Elkton, Maryland, and I always hated the place. It must have stuck. The next year, WEAF became the flagship station for NBC's Red Network, while WJZ became their Blue Network flagship. Ted Husing broadcast the first World Series for CBS in 1929, until 1935 when he was barred by Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis for criticizing umpires too heavily. That year, Red Barber took over. When you were the broadcaster at a microphone, you were the entire show. And you just tried to talk about what you saw. And one of the exciting things in the early days was the contest that never seemed to end between Graham McNamee and Ted Husing. They were always competing with each other. I know that Husing was the first great technician as a sports broadcaster, and he was the soul of pinpoint honesty. I do the work that's given to me to do it as truthfully as I can do it, and if people like it, fine, and sometimes they uh, haven't liked it. By the mid-1930s, with the Great Depression hurting baseball gate receipts, there were four major radio networks, NBC Red, NBC Blue, CBS, and Mutual Broadcasting. Team owners objected to radio networks airing games. Here's Jack Brown and Les Tremaine explaining why. But in the 1930s, the sports world wasn't that enthusiastic about having its games broadcast. They reasoned that if someone could stay home and hear a game for free, why would they pay to come to a ballpark? Major League Baseball clubs, for example, objected to having their home games broadcast, but there was no objection when their teams played away from their home ballpark. And the Yankees, Giants, and Brooklyn Dodgers had an interclub agreement until 1938, which wouldn't allow any broadcasting of their games except for the openers and the World Series. That was probably why no one saw baseball as a sponsored game. In 1937, the World Series was sustained because of a lack of sponsors. For a while, even the newspapers refused to carry play-by-play -play descriptions of any sport event. The broadcasting of baseball and football continued to be a hot issue as professional club owners, college officials, and broadcasters argued over whether radio reduced or increased the take at the box office. Most club owners insisted that broadcasts reduced park attendance, but a few insisted they increased the public's interest. They were correct because by 1941, a single sponsor was spending more than a million dollars on the broadcasting of minor league games over 90 stations from Albany, New York to San Diego. By then, sponsors weren't the only ones looking for broadcast exclusivity. By 1939, the All-Star Game and night baseball were being played. 
owners were trying to do anything to turn a profit. That year, the Mutual Broadcasting System won exclusive rights to broadcast the World Series. The 1939 World Series featured the three-time defending champion New York Yankees against the Cincinnati Reds, who are making their first series appearance since 1919. The Yankees swept the series in four straight, outscoring Cincinnati 20 to 8. In 